Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bibliophiles. Adam Andrews here, as usual. Glad to be on tap for another episode. Joined, as always, by the literary minds of the Center for Lit team. Let's just go around the room and introduce ourselves once again. Missy Andrews. Hi, guys. Welcome. Thanks. Ian Andrews. Hi, I'm Ian. (laughs) (laughs) Good to hear your voice, my friend. And Emily Andrews. Hello. Hello. Welcome. The Literary Andrews is at it once again for another edition of Bibliophiles. And I'm kind of excited about the topic today uh, because it's a part two. And we only have a part two when part one was so interesting that we decided we needed to continue the conversation in another episode. And today's episode is going to be a little bit like that. Uh, In our last episode, we hinted at the ancient transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. We kind of, I think Emily opened that can of worms late in our discussion last time. We were discussing art and the role of the artist and what makes literature art and what's the difference between good art and bad art. And Emily opened up a discussion of the good, the true, and the beautiful in the context of of, uh, that discussion. And that led us to talk about beauty in particular and its relationship to the other things, to truth and goodness. And I think it's probably not an overstatement to say that art literature in particular, but art in general, is concerned maybe in a special way with the beautiful. Obviously, truth and goodness are a part of art, and art that we admire and that we approve of has deep elements of the true and the good. But art, I think it's probably not an overstatement to say that art is concerned uniquely with the beautiful. And so what I'd like to do today is continue that conversation of Beauty and its relationship to truth and goodness, beauty and its relationship to art, by just tossing out a question that I hope will uh, get the rest of the Center for Lit Minds rolling and hopefully be interesting to you too, uh, listening as well. The question is this, should art be beautiful? Does it matter whether art is beautiful in order for it to be art or in order for it to be art that we approve of? What's the role of beauty in Art, And I want to toss that question out, particularly as it pertains to literature, because, of course, this is bibliophiles and we talk about books here, but I don't want to leave the other forms of art off the table either. Let's talk about music. Let's talk about film. Let's talk about uh, sculpture. Let's talk about painting, theater, any kind of art that you can think of. What is the role of beauty in art and should it be beautiful in order for us to approve of it? And Ian, I guess I want to start by tossing that question out to you, because I know from our previous conversations that this is kind of a, a, a pet topic of yours. So give us, a, give us a reaction to that question from your perspective. Yeah, sure. Um, I think the main thing that concerns me about this whole conversation is the idea that um, art is only art if it says something beautiful or if it's beautiful in its form. I'm not sure that's entirely true. Um, because I think that there is art that is 
ugly to look at, art that leaves us feeling disturbed and dismayed, art that says something we don't agree with about the world and is therefore not beautiful, but is still saying true things, things that it would behoove us to look at. And it seems to be part of the role of an artist to look unflinchingly at the world in all of its, um, in all of its beauty and in all of its ugliness. And so I guess what I would say is that maybe when we're talking about beauty in art, we're talking about um, quality in art, right? Maybe the best art says even ugly things in a beautiful way, but rather, but, but that's not to say that art cannot be art unless it is beautiful. In order to have this conversation, don't we have to define our terms? What do we even mean by the word beauty? Now, there's a question that might That's a good question. take up a lot of our time today. Missy, you brought it up. What do you think about that? What do you mean by beautiful? Well, it's, a, it's something worth talking about, you know, because half the time when you say it's something is beautiful, what you mean is it's pretty to look at, right? It's appealing. It's proportional. It's whatever. There's a lot of artifice. Elegance of form. Exactly. Proportion. Symmetry. Right. All that of sort the of parts thing. that make it visually appealing to us. But... Another way to use the term is that it says something that is true and eternal and, in a sense, is beautiful where that's concerned. So are we talking about the one or the other, or is it necessary when we're talking about beauty in this format for the two to combine to communicate? What do you guys think? Well, I would like to, I'd like to make an argument for the fact that some people have said that it's a flaw in the English language that we don't have different words for different types of beauty or that that we degrade the word beauty um, by talking about simple appearance. But, but I wonder if it's just uh, an outcome of this world that we we have trouble describing what we mean by the word beauty because we both mean appearance and we can also mean something transcendental and something that kind of wraps up into truth and goodness in itself because there there's kind of a scale that beauty moves along um that is that, that just has to be true because we live in a broken world hmm. tell me i like that idea of yeah, me too. beauty being on a scale can you explain what you mean by that Sure, but we're totally stealing this idea from Brian Wasco. <laughs> well, let's give okay. him credit then. Let's give Brian Wasco credit. <laughs> All credit to Brian Wasco from Right Bri- at Home. <laughs> Brian Wasco from Right at Home, who's one of our friends and one of our fellow laborers in the world of ideas, has come up with a really cool conception of the relationship between truth, beauty, and goodness. And Emily, it's sort of when we talked about it recently, sort of fired Emily's imagination, and so she's going to give us a precy of it now. Go ahead, Em. Well, he described it as kind of you have to imagine a sphere. And in the middle of that sphere at the nucleus is truth, beauty, and goodness all together as one. And that would be the Godhead. Um, And that is the only place where it exists in its pure form all together as one. And then as you move out towards the edges of the sphere um, and you imagine truth, beauty, and goodness kind of on tracks, what's it called? Um, Axes. Yes, axes, when you divide a circle in the middle, what's that line called? That's a diameter. Math. Nope, diameter would be all the way through. Anyway. Radius? Every, it's a radius. radius. <laughs> it's a, Clearly, math it's is nuclear, not our subject. Whatever it is. <laughs> so anyway, you imagine truth, beauty, and goodness as radii going out to the edges, and they kind of part from one another. 
and uh, beauty in particular. So when you get to the edge of it, you know, we're talking about simple... Superficial. Um, right, superficial beauty, the beauty of... Um, the superficial beauty of a woman who may not necessarily be good on the inside, but she is beautiful to look at on the outside. Um, and then when you get down towards the middle and the nucleus and beauty as part of truth and goodness, it's really hard to not describe beauty without using the words truth and goodness because we can't really describe what we mean by that without getting it mixed up with the other two. So in a sense, the the closer to the center of that sphere you go, the more uh, beautiful something becomes, partially because it starts to incorporate truth and goodness as well. Is that is that the idea? Right. Right. And I think that the closer together they get, the harder it is to separate them when you're trying to describe what you mean. Wow. Props to to Emily and to Brian Wasco for coming up with that thought. What do you guys? What's your reaction to that, guys? Is that a is that a uh, a concept that's worth working with? Oh, I think so. I like it. I love the idea that um, the closer you get to the eternal quality of beauty, the oh, that's not the right word. The essential, the essential, ultimate, beauty, ultimate, ultimate. Yeah, the ultimate expression of beauty partakes necessarily of goodness and truth. But that's not to say that the outside perimeter of beauty um, doesn't resemble that other thing. And therefore, right, and while both partakes of it and then lacks, mm-hmm. demonstrably lacks in some ways. Right. Like the ring of gold in right. the pig snout. You know what I mean? And there's, there's just a scale going between the two that on this earth, while we're part of a fallen nature, we're going to see different combinations of them that are windows into the ultimate, right? Um, but they're not necessarily the ultimate themselves well, or altogether. Think, yeah. I think we um, maybe maybe it's a good time to jump in and sort of tear it down out of the philosophical clouds. And um, I don't know. Let's talk about TV for a minute, right? Um, there, there, there is a danger in in unifying truth, beauty, and goodness, and talking about like Emily was just saying, as though all of them ultimately are the same and connected in three sides of the same. Well, I guess three parts of the same sphere, because what that will eventually lead to is, let's say we're looking at the wide world of television right now. There are some deep thinkers and some smart people and some great directors making film for TV that uh, portrays a lot of pretty gritty, real-life content, Um, and I don't think... That we could call it beautiful. I mean, say this: say it's a show about a horror, a horrible situation like a murder or something like that. Not a pretty story at all. And if we have decided to combine um, truth, goodness, and beauty, and evaluate art only in light of all three of those things all of the time, then what we're going to do is, well, we can't watch that show. It isn't beautiful, and so it must not be true, and it must not be good because it isn't beautiful. And we never find those three things separated from one another. I guess what I would argue is that under the explanation Emily just gave us, we understand that something can be very true and very good and still be portraying something ugly, and that each one of those, um, each one of those three things can be sort of separated from the other two. Mm. What we might be able to recognize is that that particular show may say some true things about the world, and maybe it's even good that, that those things are said. It's good that we pay attention to those things, yeah. even if 
it's not necessarily a beautiful experience. That's really interesting. And it, it reminds me of something we said in our last episode when we talked about the, the nature of art and the purpose of art. And we sort of came down on the idea that we got from Leo Tolstoy's uh, 19th century kind of booklet on the subject that art is something that reaches out to all of us in our humanness and and creates a communion between people by talking about the human condition and and calling out to fellow humans and saying this is what it is to be a human if that's kind of a definition of art then ian you're suggesting an answer to our question should art be beautiful um you're sort of answering not necessarily because it can call out to us in our humanness, create a community of viewers and participants that is centered in the common experience of humanity without being beautiful. Yeah, it's it's only necessary in that sense that it be true. Or good, Ian, perhaps. Ian, so that thing that you said to me before about um, needing to see art that is ugly in order to recognize ourselves, I thought that was really good. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the other things that I was that I was trying to say is that um, there's a there is a I think for for anyone who, um, who has, well, I guess for anyone, <laughs> there's a there's a large portion of our own hearts and our own souls that's pretty dark. Um, we're sinful creatures, and right. so in some senses, if we are conditioned to, um, as children in the project of education, right, for conditioned to only regard things that are beautiful, and to call all beautiful things true, and vice versa. We're going to have a really hard time looking at our own souls and um, opening our eyes wide to what we find and understanding ourselves and our brokenness and in our depravity. Yes. Um, and I should say, I should clarify, um, when I'm talking about ugly things that are also true, it, it goes just as well the other direction, right? Um, if we unify truth and beauty, we start thinking that all beautiful things are, are therefore true. Mm-hmm. Just like we start thinking all true things must therefore be beautiful. And that's that's equally false, right? There's all kinds of beauty, as Mom was saying earlier. There are all kinds of beautiful things where the beauty is only skin deep. Yeah. And the more that we dig, the more horror we find underneath it. Um, so I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is when we, when we evaluate art, we need to preserve some distance and we need to understand that um, there's a broader definition of art than just that which is beautiful. And I think it's important to look at it that way. That rem- That's a great comment. Great comment. It reminds me of something that uh, one of our old professor friends uh, told us back in the college days. Um, it was in the 80s, and two of the big TV shows on, t- on the air in those days were Cheers with Ted Danson and uh, Married with Children with the um, actor whose name I, f- I forget, but I don't know if anybody remembers Ted that. Ted Danson? No, Ted Danson was, it was on Cheers. Oh, Married with Children was this oh, 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 uh, this yes. sitcom about a horrible marriage. The guy was a complete deadbeat, and his his wife was a terrible person. And it was his, like a precursor to The Simpsons in a lot of ways. Yeah, and uh, and Cheers was this was the show about bar life, basically about uh, single people in a bar relating to each other. And it was sunny and happy and witty, and the the main character was attractive, and uh, it was super popular. Um, our professor friend said. Uh, Cheers, the the beautiful show, is way more insidious and uh, deleterious in its effects on viewers than Married with Children, this show that basically portrayed a horrible, horrible marriage with horrible people. <laughs> and uh, you know, everything rem- about it was just completely taken to the 11th yeah. degree. Yeah. And I, I used to think, why in the world could you say that? There's this horrible, you, basically when you watch Married with Children, you're, you're defiled at every turn. Your, your eyes are defiled. Your mind is defiled. And he, he made the point that Married with Children was saying something 
that had more truth in it. It was a satire. Than it was a, it was a satire of human nature taken to its uh, you know nth degree. It's absurd extreme. Exactly. So that there was no doubt about the picture of human nature that it was painting. Nobody wanted to be that family yes. when they walked away. Right. And so he basically argued that the the one story told the truth and the other story was was nothing more than a beautiful lie. And uh yeah. He drew the distinction, although we didn't put it in those terms in the, in that day, drew the distinction between uh, a beauty that is skin deep, that masks a lie underneath, and something, on the other hand, that has no beauty, that's ugly on the surface, but underneath there's something true and even good. And that's sort of, sort of an example of what you're talking about, I think, Ian. I I yeah, was trying absolutely. to wrap my mind around this subject in preparation for this conversation because people have been arguing about what beauty means for years and years and years. And I came across this um, this essay by Ralph Waldo, Waldo Emerson, the American transcendentalist and naturalist. And he talks about this subject. Um, can you mind if I read? No, go ahead. About a paragraph here. A beautiful person among the Greeks was thought to betray by this sign some secret favor of the immortal gods. And we can pardon pride when a woman possesses such a figure that wherever she stands or moves or leaves a shadow on the wall or sits for a portrait to the artist, she confers a favor on the world. And yet it is not beauty that inspires the deepest passion. Beauty without grace is the hook without the bait. Beauty without expression tires. Abbe Menage said of the president La Belleule that, quote, he was fit for nothing but to sit for his portrait, end quote. A Greek <laughs> epigram intimates that the force of love is not shown by the courting of beauty, but when the like desire is inflamed for the one who is ill-favored. And petulant old gentlemen who have chanced to suffer some intolerable weariness from pretty people, or who have seen cut flowers to some profusion, or who see, after a world of pains have been successfully taken for the costume, how the least mistaken sentiment takes all the beauty out of your clothes. Affirm that the secret of ugliness consists not in irregularity, but in being uninteresting. I just, I love the way he... He puts that idea of beauty um, without content, Mm -hmm. tiring us, being uninteresting, um, failing to engage in a lot of ways, being nothing, literally nothing but artifice. And the, um, I don't know, the, it, it makes me think about what you were saying, Emily, about all of beauty being on a continuum, right? Yeah. That the outer perimeter um, can tell us the truth just like the the inner core in that way. Mm-hmm. Because by its absence, it shows up what beauty ought to be, right? I guess that's where my mind is going with all of this. The, the When I suggested earlier about the ring of gold and the pig snout, so as a woman, a beautiful woman without discretion, um, that's true too. There's a truth even that we find on the perimeter of beauty, that artifice um, that lacks the integrity of beauty with content, yeah. right? And when we see something that's beautiful that lacks content, the fact that we notice that it's missing proves the the thesis, right? That beauty, true beauty, ultimate beauty, is not only form but is also content. Like Emily was saying with the sphere, yes, and just the like what Emily radii was saying, moving outward oh. from it. So everything on that line is um, is is saying the same thing. Whether it means to be or not, I understand you. Do you understand? Yeah, me? Well, Emily, you had a comment. Clearly. 
Well, I was just thinking at the beginning of this conversation when you were talking about art partaking of beauty, um, that that it is true, though, because even art that's ugly, say a shockingly ugly painting, calls attention to its lack of beauty. It shocks us because it isn't beautiful. Right. Right. And that's um, what I think that's what mom is saying, right? Yes, exactly. So, so it may not necessarily be beautiful, but it has a relationship with beauty in that way because it either has it or it lacks it. And that calls us to different uh, reactions. Exactly. Ah, interesting. It's like a foil so, for beauty. So, so, Emily, given what you have said, which kind of piggybacks on what mom was saying, what would your answer be to uh, should art be beautiful? Would you be able to give a more nuanced answer? Oh, I mean, I, I agree with what we've, what, what we've been saying. Um, and I think that art that is ugly, I don't think that it has to be beautiful. And I think that art is ugly is either doing two things. It's either ugly so that we recognize beauty and are drawn to beauty, or it's ugly because it wants to tell us that there is no real true beauty in the world. And I think both of those things um, to hear can be good for us. Mm, that's the next, that's kind of the next direction I wanted to go. Let's take this idea and apply it to our own projects as readers or watchers of movies or listeners of music. What should we be listening to? What should be, re- what should we be reading? Are there ways we can um, choose books based on this idea? You mean, should we only read beautiful books? Well, I didn't want to go that far. I mean, I think there's probably a more nuanced way to approach the subject. Does this does this idea of what beauty is and what, and how art should reflect it? Uh, is there something in that idea that will help us in our in our uh, consuming of art, reading books, watching movies, listening to music? I think you want to be careful to to make sure that you partake of both. You don't want to do one without the other in either direction, and um, one without the other, which, what are, what are the one and the other that you're talking about there, Emily? Well, you don't want to, you don't want to partake of all completely beautiful art because of the reason that Ian was talking about where you wouldn't be able to recognize yourself and your own fallenness. And you don't want to partake of all ugly art without the beautiful because we do, the beautiful does call us to the image of God. Right. And, mm-hmm. and we want to make sure that we have that in our soul. Mm. Um, so kind of like, the law and, and gospel question you you have to have both right ah <laughs> uh, yes um, but, yeah i guess i would yeah but we are all seem to be drifting towards a position that says there is a legitimate role for art that is beautiful and for art that is ugly are we not yeah and i think that the the place that those things intersect is content I mean, the place that we would see for art that is ugly is that it demonstrates the ugliness inherent in the fallen world and in fallen man. That's a content issue. Right. It says something true about the world and about man. Maybe it doesn't have beauty, but it's long on truth. Exactly. Right. Right. That's what I would say is um, uh, a definition of art, a broad umbrella definition of art maybe has more to do with truth than beauty. Well, and you have to remember that truth is on that same continuum. Right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Which is why we get Keats saying in his Ode on a Grecian Urn, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That's all you know on earth and all we ever need to know. Right. He's as he moves down that continuum towards the core, they become inseparable things in his mind. And that's what he's dwelling on. 
Right. Right. He's the, the he's, intersection. He's of imagining truth and the beauty. intersection of truth and beauty. I was thinking about a a book that we read a lot and that we assign to our kids in our online classes and that we uh, encourage parents to use in their curriculum materials, and that is Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea. And that's the 1953 Nobel Prize winner from the famous American author that, if you haven't read it, paints a pretty bleak picture of uh, the meaning of the universe and does it in what I would consider extremely beautiful prose. Um, how do we handle a book like that? I mean, on the one hand, I think it's it's uh, high on the beauty scale, although some other people would probably differ with me not liking Hemingway's prose as much as I do. But on the truth scale, um, I think it fails a little bit. Is there, but, and yet we, we assign it and teach it and think about it and cherish it uh, enthusiastically around here. What does that say about our use of the ideas of truth, goodness, and beauty? Well, one of the things that you said just now is that it fails on the truth scale. And the first thing that jumps to mind when I when I think of Hemingway is that it's the most accurate and persuasive and well-written account of the, the philosophical perspective of nihilism that I've ever read. And nihilism is a thing that exists. It's a, it's a part of the world. It's a philosophical perspective that many people are persuaded of. And um, so I guess I, I don't know precisely what you mean by it fails on the truth scale. It doesn't, from my perspective... Um, arrive at the right conclusions based on my worldview, but it is an accurate um, it's an accurate attempt to communicate Hemingway's worldview. Yes. Ah, very yes. good. Yeah, he's telling the truth as he knows it. You know, right? He's being very sincere in the communication of his own understanding of how the world actually is. And if if we were to grant his premises, we would have to say that his conclusions are accurate. Mm-hmm. I don't happen to grant his premise. Right. You know, if it's true that there is no God, then grace under pressure is the most that we can hope for. It's the best any man can achieve. Um, Actually, though, there is a God, so we can hope for much more than that. Um, He's we can't throw him out as telling lies. Yeah, because he's not lying. Right. He's just um, blind. Mm -hmm. He's blind to ultimate truth. And what is that? I think. Well, I, I was going to say, and to be clear, I do think that there are people that we can say are telling lies. I think that there are mm. artistic projects that are trying actively to undermine the very idea of truth. And I, I do think that we can pass judgment on those as at least bad art, if not a failure at art in general. Give me an um, example. I, the first thing that jumps to mind is in the is in the painting world, um, the Dadaists. Mm-hmm. Uh, the entire project is predicated on, and it's, it's painting and sculpture and, and installation art and performance art and all these sorts of things, all predicated on the idea that there is no such thing as meaning. And so everything that they try and construct is meant to deconstruct and attack your human senses because they shouldn't mean anything. And it's, I mean, it's a self-defeating project it's, because if they intend to say anything, then they must be believing exactly. in meaning and so on the circle goes. But that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is I would say every single time that the Dadaist movement was terrible art, absolutely awful art. Um, and I would say that not just because I don't think it's pleasing to the eye, but also because I think its project is opposed to truth. 
So, mm-hmm. so you would not only um, broaden our horizons a little bit on the issue of beauty and suggest that things that are not beautiful by a traditional definition are still worthy art, but you might also actually broaden our, our understanding of truth a little bit when we're trying to participate in art, in literature or painting or sculpture or whatever it is, and say that truth doesn't, ex- doesn't necessarily mean capital T truth that we receive from God and anything that doesn't line up with revealed truth of Scripture is false— but you would define truth a little bit more as an artist being honest about his presuppositions and proceeding in an honest way based on the light that he has to say something about the world. He's making true observations right. about the world from his own perspective. And in so much as he communicates that perspective with candor, um, there is some truth available to us in reading it, even if we intensely disagree with his premises or his conclusions, right? But but the only art then that would be that would fail the truth test, if I'm understanding you right, is uh, art that says that whose project is to claim that there is no truth. For example, if if Hemingway had painted a nihilistic world and had at the end said that happiness was available to a man in that world, he would have been telling a lie. That would have been disingenuous. Mm-hmm. But what we see again and again is that, that the nihilists paint a world absent God and they find in it no real hope except for whatever their own human effort can generate in terms of holding up their head and retaining some dignity. And, right. so, and go ahead, Ian. Well, I guess what I was going to say is maybe maybe what we're coming around to is the idea that um, the, that what art contains is pertinent questions honestly asked. Um, because I think what what Hemingway is basically saying is, okay, what if the world were this way? Well, this is how it would go, right? Right. Yeah, you turns kind to of you get as a reader and relates to you and says, "Isn't this awful?" And so and <laughs> and so he does what Tolstoy was urging about art tries to make a connection, a communion among people based on the idea that true communication can actually happen through art about right. his conclusions, read the world. That's why it's so important, I, just, I think, not to eliminate, um, to cast outside the pale those things that are not particularly from a Christian worldview. Because look at the, um, the opportunity that that kind of expression provides to um, to parents and to Christian readers, um, we get to essentially step into another man's shoes and see the world as he sees it. And it creates, it should create um, compassion and empathy, and empathy yeah. right? It should um, give us a better vision of ourselves and in a, at the same time, um, call up a joy and a gratitude for the revelation um, of Christ in in the world in little things and in big things and the particular revelation that we've received as believers which has lifted us out of that same kind of despair that's evident as the ultimate results of annihilism, annihilism for example yeah, exactly you know? yeah. I mean I I think that that kind of art um, in the same way that we talked about beauty being on a continuum that kind of art um, You'd have to say that it glorifies God. I, I think I would have to say that when you read it as a Christian, as an expression of man's condition, right? Man's blindness, man's fallenness, um, man's need, all of those kinds of things, it does nothing but tell the truth 
in that regard. It just doesn't tell the complete truth, just like beauty and the, and the exterior of that line, the, the exterior of that perimeter we were talking about, right. doesn't tell the complete truth because it doesn't know the complete truth. It doesn't embody the com- complete truth. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't reflect truth in some way. Even though he his intention wasn't to glorify God, obviously, he was his intention was to tell the truth as he understood it. But in so much as he's telling the truth as he understands it, he's acting as a foil for ultimate truth. And so when we read it as Christians, we see in it truth with a little T. And right. um, you know, even in its deficit, it is glorifying God. Everything does. Yeah. And Emily, I think you had a comment on that subject uh, a minute ago. I wanted to give you a chance to weigh in. Oh, uh, mine kind of goes a little off subject, but I noticed when Ian was talking about the Dadaist that not only was he talking about an ugliness of content, but an ugliness of form. But when we talk about Ernest Hemingway, we're talking about, I mean, what to us would be a beauty of form, but an ugliness of content. Um, And I wondered if, I mean, that just seems like interesting. What do we do in literature with an ugliness of form? Like, I guess we're when we're talking about it, ugliness of form in our conversation thus far, we've talked about, you know, uh, content that is shocking or ugly or. Yeah. Um, but but what do you do with. I like the Pulp Fiction writers where the form is ugly, but the thing they say is true. Encourage them to go back to school and learn how to write. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's not that important. I just noticed an interesting kind of paradox in in what we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. That that brings up something uh, interesting. That it, I, I'll bet that most of us, as particularly as parents and teachers who are guiding the young through literature and art, are concerned primarily with content as opposed to form. Maybe it's because we don't. Uh, well, I don't know. Speak for I'm, yourself. <laughs> I'm getting the speak for yourself look. And frankly, the speak for yourself words from my wife here. I would be. Well, I, I would imagine that most parents are concerned that the things that their kids read be true. As opposed to beautiful. Well, certainly we want the things that our children to read to be true, to be telling the truth in some way or reflecting at least a portion of the truth as we've been talking about. Um, I'm also interested that they be reading something that is beautiful. And I don't mean beautiful in content, Ian. I mean something that is beautifully expressed. When I read Hemingway... Symmetry and proportion and that sort of thing. I think he is beautifully expressing his thoughts, both linguistically Mm -hmm. and philosophically. This is a beautiful expression of nihilism. When he he manages to boil an entire philosophical idea down into a 10-word sentence... It is elegant. I think that is masterful and beautiful. And I think that the idea itself of nihilism is reprehensible because it denies the truth of God's existence. But I wouldn't then from that say that there's no value in reading anything Hemingway's ever written because he beautifully expresses nihilism. There's beauty in, in human expression. And that, that you know, I want my kids not only to read something that's true, but I want them to read it truly spoken and elegantly stated. And that comment you just made about Hemingway beautifully expressing nihilism really does underscore uh, Emily and Brian Wasco's idea that there is a that they're related in some sort of yes. 
system of intersecting axes that something can be, can say, can tell a lie or say something untrue beautifully means that beauty and truth ought to be separated in our minds and we ought to consider them Mm -hmm. as different aspects of art. Yeah, because otherwise, I I guess the only thing that wouldn't fall outside the pale of um, qualifying if everything must be the ultimate expression of beauty, truth, and goodness, then we confine ourselves to um, to Scripture, to divine revelation, mm-hmm. right. because that's the only place that we're ever going to find all of those three things in their purest form. And I think I would right, argue. Right, go ahead, Ian. Even, well, even in Scripture, there are horrible things that happen. I mean, that's. <laughs> I think we're concerning ourselves to the Trinity. Period. Right, we concern ourselves to the person of God when we look for goodness, truth, and beauty to be present equally uh, in one place. I, I remember I had a conversation with a professor of, of mine in college, who's actually a professor of both of yours as well, which is pretty interesting. Perks of going to the same school as your parents, I guess. <laughs> uh, Perks is one way to put it. Yeah, um, <laughs> but it was Dr. Bauman. I was sitting in a, in a class with Dr. Bauman, and we were studying Milton, going through Paradise Lost, and the conversation got philosophical and we started talking about goodness, truth, and beauty. And I said what many young uh, Christian boys are taught to say, which is that, well, those, those are all, those are all three the same, right? And good art is all three of them the same. And he looked at me and said, okay, Ian, he has sort of this, this look on his face. <laughs> that was a so, fair representation. <laughs> okay. Ian. So what, what do you do then with the crucifixion? And he said, is the crucifixion beautiful? <laughs> and I thought about it for a second, and not to be outdone, I said, of course it is. And then we went to, we went to war <laughs> over whether the mutilation of the body of Christ was beautiful. Uh-huh. And that's the, that's the conversation that started waking me up yeah. to why this conversation needs to be had. I mean, does it or does it not, and I'll present this question to the three of you, does it or does it not steal from the power and importance and gravity of the action of the crucifixion to call it beautiful well right because the consequences of the crucifixion were beautiful but the act in itself was the ultimate degradation right and necessary it was necessary that it be horrifyingly wrong in every way for that act to take place in order to to atone for sin yeah i mean it's this theological necessity that the crucifixion not be beautiful. I, I really think that's and so, like, Go ahead, Ian. If that's true, well, if that's true, then I think we're on to something when we talk about art and, and talk about the separation of truth, goodness, and beauty when we evaluate art. And, and that leads into another comment of about art, getting back to this, the question that, that started this whole thing off. What is the purpose of art? Should it be beautiful uh, in accomplishing its purpose? One of the things that separates art from the Trinity and the Godhead is that art is concerned with suffering. Art is concerned with the human condition, which is, which is laced through with suffering at every turn. And if you go back and look at the history of art, you find if you want to just look at examples of suffering, of suffering as the subject of art, you find it from the beginning right down to the present day as an obsession with, of artists. I'm looking here at, a W.H. Auden poem about beauty and suffering. And um, can we read that? Well, yeah, I, go ahead. That'd be great. 
Do you have more to say before I jump in? Well, I was just going to say that that one of the reasons that this question of should art be beautiful is important is because unless we understand that art is about suffering, among other things, but almost always eventually about suffering, then we're going to have a hard time identifying good art if our fixation is with beauty, mm-hmm. because suffering is very often not beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead and really read the, the Autumn poem. I think it'd be great. Okay. Uh, This is called the Musée de Beaux-Arts, and it's by W.H. Auden. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position. How it takes place while someone else is eating, or opening a window, or just walking dully along. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, There always must be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course, anyhow, in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life, and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster— The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water, and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. I think Auden really does capture very artistically, speaking of art, um, this idea of the relationship between beauty and suffering that you're trying to talk about right now. Yes. Right? Um, That it's very significant that the suffering goes on at the same time as mundane things are going on, and the mundanity and the suffering juxtapositioned in that way is beautiful because it tells the truth about the world in yeah. some way. And he, the poem is a comment on a painting, Bruegel's Icarus, that uh, I, I advise you to look it up. It's really kind of stirring. It's kind of a pastoral scene with a bunch of different kinds of people going about their business. In the foreground. In the foreground. And in the background, there are a pair of legs sticking up out of the ocean. And we find that in the background, in a far off corner of this painting, Icarus has just fallen from the sky. He's plunged to his death. This great mythic tragedy takes place in the context of a human world where nobody really even notices. And even those who do aren't particularly concerned or moved by it because it's not their tragedy. And he's saying some really true things about suffering in this poem, how individual it is by nature, right? And um, well, anyway. Well, I think it's a really good example of the, the point I was making that art is about suffering at some level, that Bruegel in painting Icarus was talking about suffering that Auden in commenting on the painting was talking about suffering. It's a preoccupation for the artist Mm -hmm. because he's involved in telling the human story. And he says basically that all the old masters knew this. They understood suffering. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what it means at some level to do an art, to do art. And the fact that he says and towards the end of line two, beginning of line one, how well they understood its human position, that concept of, um, Articulating a truth from its human perspective, from its human position, is really inherent in good art. 
Ian and Emily, do some of the the uh, TV shows that you guys uh, are interested in these days uh, qualify as art in this definition that we are trying to to formulate? Oh, totally. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, they do. Even though perhaps we wouldn't call them beautiful in every detail. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Maybe even more importantly even though we almost certainly as Christian parents wouldn't hand them to our 10 year old and right. say, have a good time. <laughs> I mean, um, that's the, the, and that's maybe that's something we ought to do now at, here towards the end. I mean, I know, I know we've only got about seven minutes left of our, of our conversation today, but um, so what do we do with all of this information, right? As educators, as teachers of kids, but generally between the ages of kindergarten and 12th grade, yeah. Um, how do we make sure that the mix of messages they're getting from art and about art are the right ones? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess what, what my concern is, as you probably could tell throughout this conversation, my concern is that we don't um, let our children leave the house with the idea that the beautiful things are all that matter and that all they need to pay attention to is beautiful things and that challenging, difficult, ugly confounding material is necessarily worse than beautiful material because that's the kind of that's the kind of preconceived notion that can turn you away from your brother or your sister when they're caught in sin can turn you away from your spouse someday and can turn you away from an honest view of yourself yes and that also makes you an ineffective evangelist to the world if you're a christian trying to evangelize right if you want your children to be able Mm. to give a reason for the truth that is in them that inspires others they're going to have to understand the human condition and be able to to connect with other people living in the fallen world Right. I can't count the number of conversations I had in college where a friend would, would open up to me about some struggle they were going through. And and um, they would look at me and they would say, you just don't understand. You don't understand what's going on in my heart. You don't understand. You can't possibly understand because you, you know, had a good family or because you, you know, for any, any number of reasons, you were inexperienced about the world. You're a freshman in college. You can't possibly understand. And my response could actually have been... Yes, I do, because I've read, and there's this book where this happens to this character and that character, and I have availed myself of all of these great thinkers and great writers about exactly what you're talking about. The human condition is common to us all. Right. So in that way, we're seeing... Only if I've read things that said difficult stuff about the world, though. Yes. Right, right. In that way, you're basically articulating the same idea that we talked about last time in the podcast that Tolstoy was articulating in his essay about art, that it creates a kind of uh, community, Right. right, upon which we can all... Um, converse about these things together because we may not all have had exactly the same common experiences, mm-hmm. but art becomes a common medium yeah. that allows us to communicate with one another about what it means to be human. Wow. Once again, my friends, you have done it. You've got me thinking and you've got me pondering and you've got me uh, at a place where I'm pretty grateful that we are in a culture and a civilization where the arts are available to us. I hope this conversation has been uh, helpful to you listeners as well. I want to thank you for joining us. 
we're going to go ahead and adjourn uh, to go cook up another idea for another great Bibliophiles podcast. In the meantime, I hope you'll come down to centerforlit.com on the web and uh, check out the resources that we have available for readers and thinkers and consumers of art of all shapes and sizes. In particular, check out the Pelican Society, which is our membership program for people that appreciate the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Inside, you'll find discounts on all of our products, uh, exclusive access to live events, a free teacher guide every six weeks where we take one or more works of Western literature written for readers from K through 12 and analyze it for its eternal themes, uh, help you take a child through it in a discussion and decide whether it's good, true, beautiful, or some mixture of the three. We hope you'll come, come by and check it out. And in the meantime, until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.